0: 1 John chapter 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of by this we know, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walked. There is the Apostle John clearly helping us to understand how we may truly know if we are Christians. And that's what we have already observed. That's what first john is all about it helps us to to test ourselves because you see if it's somebody else who is challenging our professional faith we can argue we can say the person is becoming perhaps too strict for our liking but when the word of god gives us the tests one by one by one we can't argue because it is God Himself who is speaking to us and letting us know whether we are truly His or not. Already in the first chapter we have observed that uh, John spoke of Christianity as being experiential. He himself, together with the other apostles, had had met the Lord Jesus Christ, they had seen him, they had, they had touched him, they had looked upon Him, in other words, examined everything about Him, and found Him to be truly the Savior. Now we have said that we will never in this side of eternity see Him that way unless He comes in His second coming, by which it will be too late for us to benefit from seeing Him. But by faith, the eye of faith, beholds Jesus Christ as Saviour and consequently appeals to Him for salvation. And if you you, you haven't done that, you, you haven't become conscious in a very real way of who Jesus truly is and consequently called upon Him for salvation, obviously you cannot claim to be a Christian. And then we also saw in the first chapter that Christianity Uh, demands being convinced of the essential nature of God, especially Him being truth and Him being holy. The picture that John uses is that God is light, in Him there is no darkness at all. And then us responding to that reality, responding in integrity, responding Owning our own sinfulness. That's how we become Christians. And then lastly again from the first chapter we saw that Christianity demands honest dealings with the question of sin. Remember we asked the simple question, have you sinned? A non-Christian who may be religious begins to shift in that chair realizing that if I say yes, then I'm giving away too much. It it may mean that I've lost the right of entrance into heaven. And they want to say no, but again they realize that clearly everybody has sinned, so how can I say no? And so they begin shifting in their chairs. A true Christian will immediately say, yes, I've sinned, and I've gone to Jesus Christ, that he might wash away my sins. I have confessed my sin to God. He is faithful and just. He will forgive all my sins and cleanse me from all righteousness. So, there are at least three tests in the first chapter. How have you fared thus far? This is a matter of life and death. To fail these tests is to find yourself in hell, unless you truly pray to Jesus to save you from your sin. Today we commence the second chapter. And in beginning this chapter, we, we immediately are confronted with an apparent contradiction. And the apparent contradiction is this. That on one hand, God is opposed to sin. God hates sin. But on the other, God has provided for sin. He has provided for sinners. Both in the same passage of scripture. Let me put it this way. That although those two sound contradictory, they are only contradictory to individuals who are not yet true Christians. When the Lord has saved you from sin, both of those apparently contradictory emotions sit next to each other in your soul. You say, To yourself and to others, God hates sin with perfect hatred. I hate it too. And at the same time you are able to say, God has provided a Savior in Jesus and I rest in Him. I trust in Him. He is my advocate. He speaks to God on my behalf and consequently although i have sinned against god i know i'm going to go to heaven both of them residing in your soul so again as we make our way through the first two verses of this chapter my appeal to you is this examine yourself examine yourself there's no point in us making our way right through First John, up to the end, and you still meet God on the judgment day, and he still sends you to hell, you cannot plead ignorance, because you've been given opportunity after opportunity to examine yourself. So let's look at these two verses together quickly. The first fact that you must be totally persuaded about if you are to be a true Christian, is that God is completely opposed to sin. God hates sin. God, therefore, must punish sin. It is the worst thing that can ever happen that anybody should entertain sin in his heart, in his words, or even in his actions. That's a non-negotiable When it comes to understanding the God who is there. He is a holy God. He hates sin. And hence we read back in our text. John writing to the believers. My little children, he says. I'm writing you these things, I'm writing these things to you, so that you may not sin. Now when John says, my little children, he he, he does not by that imply that he's only writing to Sunday school kids. It's a phrase of endearment. It's a phrase that is used by the Lord Jesus Christ in, in John 13 and verse 33. You don't need to tend to it now, but those of you taking notes can take note of it. The Lord himself used it when he was in the upper room with his disciples. He, he addressed them as my little children. And remember they were definitely not little. They were not children at that point. They were married men, adults. And he was not at the age of 84. He was only 33 years old. So at the most we can say, they were his peers. But it it was a phrase of endearment. The Lord was about to leave them. They were about to be left in the hands of persecutors who were seeking to destroy them. And so, he speaks to them with a sense of affection that was, as it were, extraordinary. And that's what John is doing here. He's addressing those who profess Christ. And he is saying to them that out of the bowels of my affections, here is my plea to you. I have written these things. And by that he's referring to what he has already written in the first chapter. The experiential nature of Christianity. The recognition that God is holy. He is light. He hates sin. He is a God of truth. He hates hypocrisy. And that is a God who wants us have honest dealings with the issue of sin. I'm writing these things to you for one reason, that you may not sin. Let me put it a little differently. Anyone who teaches you a Christianity that allows you to wallow in sin, and still gives you an entrance into heaven, is an enemy of your soul. Get away from him. Get away from her. Because the Christianity of the Bible is one that never compromises on the nature of God. He hates sin. He must punish it. We clearly see it from the book of Genesis. When Eve sinned against God and caused her husband Adam to also sin against God, God came in and punished them. And up to this day, we are still paying painfully for the sin of our first parents a few thousand years ago. You remember what he did when it came to the days of Noah, when the world had become so full of sin. God rained waters from heaven and drowned literally the entire human race that was there, except for eight individuals. Remember what happened in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah? When homosexuality became the order of the day in that town. In those two twin towns. Remember, he literally rained fire from heaven. And it consumed those two towns. Friends, God hates sin. It's a non-negotiable. if you have reached a point in your life where you are entertaining sin you keep sin in your bosom and you say after all i've been baptized after all i've been accepted as a church member after all i i played this role or that role in the church and therefore i can entertain sin and somehow i seem to be getting away with it i'm telling you you are playing with fire the nature of God is that He hates sin, He must punish it, He will punish you for your sin unless you repent of it and begin living a clean life. The very reason why God has given us the Bible, the very reason why John has written it is this so that you may not. Let me ask you, is that the effect church going is having on you? Is that the effect of the lessons that you are learning in Bible study, church services, perhaps even at home in reading the Bible, is that what's coming through to you? That God hates sin to the point where you yourself now are aiming daily, At a life that is above sin. A life without sin. You are fighting sin with all the power and sinew and strength that is in you. I'm asking, is that your Christianity? Many years ago, when I was a student at the University of Zambia, I was evangelizing another student and got to a point where he had even prayed. I didn't believe in forcing people to pray but he specifically said to me I want to pray and he prayed and consequently we began to go to church together for a week, two weeks One particular Sunday, he was nowhere to be seen. Searched for him. He didn't come to church. And I very well remember knocking on his door again and again, and nobody was answering. But when I peeped through the curtains, there was definitely someone in bed. No, there were two people in bed. So I knocked and knocked and knocked and knocked. Until he felt the way you are now feeling. He woke up. Came and opened the door, half naked, just giving me a little bit of room, and said, look, I'm I'm not really feeling well, you know, so, yeah, yeah, we could have talked now, but uh, I'm not feeling well. I was about to close the door. I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm coming in. And as I came in, the second person had the, Blankets completely covered over the head. I went there. I used to be quite overzealous in those days. I pulled the blankets and there was a female there. And I began to evangelize. I mean, the best time to deal with a person so that they don't say, me, a sinner, me, where did you see me sitting? Is when you catch them with their hands in the, the ice cream. But I've never forgotten what this lady said. She said, look, don't don't worry about me. Because the church I go to, when I arrive, a prophet will say, I know where you've been. And that prophet will now say to me, just confess to the deaconess at the door. And everything will be okay, you can come in. So, it's alright. Don't worry about me. Now, friends, that's about 30 years ago. But the reason why I remember it is just that kind of so-called Christianity is dangerous. A Christianity that makes you at home with sin and in sin and you're even saying, don't worry. I'll just press a little button over the weekend and everything is going to be okay. Don't worry. No, that's the very reason why we should worry. If you've got the kind of Christianity that speaks peace to your conscience when you are literally sitting in sin, basking in sin, showering in sin, that Christianity is the most dangerous thing you are living with. It will take you to hell. The true Christianity of the Bible says do not sin. Do not continue in sin. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The true Christianity of the Bible should make your conscience clear. If you fall into sin. Which leads me to the second point. The second fact that you must be totally persuaded of is that God recognizes the sad fact that although He is opposed to sin, you will still sin. Christianity is realistic. It doesn't play hide and seek with facts that stare it in the face. It doesn't. That is what John alludes to here. Listen to his words again. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, but if anyone does, does. Here he is saying, don't sin. And at the same time he is saying, I recognize the fact of this possibility taking place among you, my little children. Now when John puts it that way, he's not at a T-junction. Where he's simply saying, well, look, you know, sometimes you go left, sometimes you go right. It doesn't really matter, you know. I wish you had gone to the left, but I know some of you would choose to go to the right. Friends, truth matters. Morality matters. Righteousness and sin, those two matter to God. And so, when, when John is saying, but if, but, but if anyone does sin, I'm saying to you, listen to the pain with which he says it. It's a big but. It's a painful but. It's as though saying, oh, oh, I realize. And with all the desire, the zeal, the commitment, the passion that you may have for, for righteousness, for holy living, I realize the fact that you will sin. And if you are a Christian, I'm sure you understand that pain. That pain. Often, you begin your day with God in his presence. You renew your vows with the morning dew. You say to the Lord, Lord, today I want to live for you. I want you to be glorified in my life. I want to serve you and you only. I want to be a means of blessing to others that they may be drawn close to you and begin to know you and walk with you. That's my desire, O Lord, that with all of my being I might glorify you. By the end of the day, you come back to that same closet, back to those same knees, and you say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, I failed you here, there, and there. My conscience is very clear about the fact that I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. Indeed, I ought to have done this, but I didn't do it. Lord, forgive me. And you say it to him with such pain in your heart that sometimes even your eyes get wet. You groan before him. Lord, make me a better man. Make me a better husband. Make me a better father. Make me a better worker. Make me a truly God glorifying individual. May tomorrow be better than today. But Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans and chapter 7? In Romans chapter 7. He says there. In verse 22. I begin from verse 21. Romans 7 verse 21. So I find it to be a law. That when I want to do right. Evil lies close at hand. When I, when I want to. I said wait jump into the air, and jump to, to the highest possible human heights. I find this gravity pulling me down like chains on my ankles, pulling me down, going against what I, my, my heart desires. Listen to the way he puts it in verse 22. For I, de- I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's me. If you were to peel me like an onion and and, and get into the me that makes me, me, you will find a person who is hungering, groaning, thirsting, passionately chasing after, obedience to God. That's me. But when you put all the lemon peels back together again, I see in my members, verse 23, Another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And here is the pain, here is the cry, wretched man that I am, it makes me miserable that I fail to be the man or the woman I want. Friends, is that you? Does that describe you? Or are you the kind of individual who's still actually chasing after sin? You 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 love it. At the first opportunity, you sort of look over your shoulders. The pastor is there, not there, the elders are not there, your fellow church members are not there, and you indulge yourself into sin. I'm saying to you, if that's you, you're going to hell. Listen to me. Your Christianity is false. It's only skin deep. You will roast in hell forever unless God really saves you. True Christianity changes us from the inside out. It turns us from being lovers of sin into lovers of God and lovers of righteousness. And we sense it in our souls. We hate sin. And when we sin, we grieve, we cry, we weep. It breaks our hearts that we should do such things against the God who has loved us, against the God whom we love. I'm asking, is that you? if you belong to that category that I've just described, where well, it grieves you to no end that you should sin against God, here comes the third fact. You must be totally persuaded that God has provided for this reality. For the reality that His children will sin against Him even after becoming Christians. He's provided for that. And he's provided for it through the advocate, Jesus Christ. And that's where John ends his first argument. And it's almost covering the whole of those two verses. Let's go back to Second John. Notice, from halfway through verse 1, all the way to verse 2, is talking about this advocate. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the world. It's interesting that John here uses the word advocate concerning Jesus. Because it's the only time that he uses this word concerning Jesus. He's used it about five times in the whole Bible. And the other four are in his gospel, the gospel of John. And all of them refer to the Holy Spirit as an advocate. But here clearly, he's mentioning who the advocate is. Jesus Christ, the righteous. How come? Well, the truth of the matter is that every Christian has two advocates. And by advocate, we mean advocate. What we mean even today, a lawyer who speaks to a judge on your behalf as an advocate. Each Christian has two advocates. One is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is actually not your advocate. He is God's advocate. In other words, He comes into your heart and He speaks to you on God's behalf. That's what He does. He's there in your heart telling you about God's desire, God's will, God's commandments, reminding you of God's law in your heart, so that you continue to go in the right way, even if you've got a job away from Lusaka in Shangombo, you don't need To have all the Christians around you, the Holy Spirit will be with you and he will continue leading you in the ways of righteousness. And that's why Jesus spoke so much about him, because he was leaving earth. And upon leaving, he was saying, I'm leaving him with you, don't worry. He's going to continue leading you. He is God's advocate in your heart. Jesus is the one who is really our advocate. Because he is speaking on our behalf to God in heaven. And that's the point he's making here. If we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He's gone into heaven. And he's speaking to the Father on our behalf so that the Father may not send us to the hell our sins deserve. The good news is this, that he is the propitiation for our sins. That's the good news. In other words, he is going to the Father, not simply trying to persuade him, Not to punish us for our sins. But he's going to the father and he is saying, Yes, John has sinned. Yes, Mary has sinned. Grievously. I mean, the tears say it all. Sinned. 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 But father, I've paid for those sins. I, I was crucified for those sins. I was crushed for those sins. Here's my blood to show for it. Spilt on the cross because of his sins. Not only his, but the sins right across the planet, right across history. Not just For those who are there now, but for those who will be there many years after that, right across the globe, who will also trust in me, have shed the blood, have paid the price for the sins. That's the point he's making here. God has made provision. He's recognized this reality. And he's given his own son to pay the price for our sins. Let let me quickly add. Because again, we are in the realm of attitude. You see, a person who has this attitude of saying, I can sin, it's okay. After all, Jesus has already paid the price for my sins. I I can sin, it's okay. I want to assure you that person. Is still blind still dead in their sins they're still on their way to hell because they don't sense what it meant for god to give his own son to pay the price for sin they don't. how can you follow the lord jesus christ into gethsemane See him fall on his knees, plead with the Father, my Father, if it is at all possible, let this cup pass away from me, this cup of suffering, let it pass away from me. He pleads with the Father three times over until his sweat becomes like great drops of blood falling to the ground, the father still holds in his heart and simply sends an angel to go and strengthen him. That he may finally pay the price for sin. And you tell me today, well, it doesn't matter after all, he paid, so let me go and sin. What? It cost God that kind of price? And you still want to pay? With see that's blindness. Serious blindness. Damning blindness. When Jesus finally drinks in the full cup of God's wrath against sin, he cries to the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? And you sit there saying, let me enjoy my sin after all. It's been paid for. You wait until you meet God face to face. And you tell him that. You say that to him. After all, you had made provision. So I had to enjoy myself. After all, you made provision. And see how He will make you pay even for that attitude. No, friends. The provision is not a license for sin. It isn't. A thousand times no. When you look at the cross and see the price that has been paid for your sin. Let me put it differently. When you look at the cross and see what your sin has done to the Son of God, you make sin your number one enemy. No. You don't want anything to do with it. No. It doesn't matter what your darling sin might be. You will say to God, oh God, help me to tear it from your throne and worship only you. Help me to live an upright life, a godly life, a life that will glorify you. Even if my friends laugh at me, even if people are going to make me suffer and even die an excruciatingly slow and painful death, so be it. I will still not be a partner to that which has cost you so much propitiation. That word simply means the one who appeases wrath on behalf of another. The one who appeases wrath on behalf of another. Friends, if you can see the price, you cannot play with sin. The story is told of two Chinese brothers. I know Chinese look alike, I. But worse, these were twins. Said was the matter. One was converted, the other one wasn't. The converted brother was often pleading with the unconverted one, saying, my friend, stop that life you're living out there you are neither fit to live nor to die stop it story has it that his friend never listened until one day while the brother was at home praying the one who was the thug the thief the bandit arrived, stormed into the house with dirty clothes, torn clothes, blood on those clothes. It was at night, he rushed into the bedroom, changed his clothes, and rushed out again into the night. Before long, the brother who was at home praying had footsteps. And banging's on the door. We know you're inside there. Banging, banging, open the door. Or else we'll break down this door. The brother knew what his twin had done. He rushed into the bedroom, put on his brother's clothes, and came and opened the door. Three gunshots on his head. Bang, bang, bang. And the guys ran away. the twin wherever it was he was hiding the following morning read the newspaper and the newspaper headline was this that he was dead it was a photo showing him with three gun bullets through his brain he knew exactly what had happened because what he saw with the clothes he had been wearing his brother had taken his place tell me would that guy just go on with his stealing with his life of recklessness i doubt In fact, the story ends by saying that this brother said, Since my brother has died my death, I will now live his life. That's the difference here. And we'll go on to see that next week. Because John goes on to say, That if you are truly a Christian, you will begin to obey his commandments, to follow his laws. And he goes on to say, you will walk as Jesus walked. There is the proof that you've truly come to understand what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. So then, as I close, here is my plea. Christianity holds the two together. Apparently contradictory, but in the same soul. God hates sin. God has provided for it. In the same soul, you will hate sin. You will not want to sin. You will do anything in your power to, to overcome any remaining sin in your life. You will do what you can do. And at the same time, you will have a well-beaten path to the cross. Again and again, every day, you will go to that fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. You will go there for cleansing. Every sinner plunged there loses his guilty stains. You will go there asking for cleansing. Is this your experience? Have you been there? Have you been to Jesus for that cleansing power? That cleansing blood? Have you been there? As you are sitting there, can you honestly say, I am washed in that blood. I know it. Once upon a time, I loved my sin. But that sin has been broken. That love has been broken. I now hate I hate it. And I want to live a righteous life. Has He cleansed your heart? And do you keep going to Him for cleansing again and again? When against your own heart's desire you sin against Him. Do you go for cleansing? Oh, that you may say to that question today, yes. Yes. And if you can't, today can be your first time. You can today go for cleansing to the Lamb of God. He can so wash you that you go home a different person. A different person. Or come to Him for cleansing today and be made a very real Christian. Amen.